We're essentially the problem solvers for getting solar on a building without a vested monetary interest, which is much needed in New York. This is the Contractor's Corner podcast series from Solar Power World. Hey everyone, this is Kelsey Misbrenner, Managing Editor of Solar Power World Magazine, and I'm here today with Angelica Ramdari. She is the Director of Resilient Solar at Solar One. Angelica was brought to my attention when I saw that she was one of nine women honored by DOE for her work in bringing affordable, clean energy to low-income neighborhoods um, in 2022. So welcome to the show, Angelica. Thank you for having me, Kelsey. So can you start by telling me how you got into the solar industry in the first place? So I grew up in New York. I was born in New York, but uh, my family's from the Caribbean and snowstorms in New York didn't match with uh, their um, habits of growing up. So we migrated to Florida and in Florida, you witness the effects of climate change all the time. You have hurricanes, you have flooding, you have weird cold days and maybe some snow flurries now. But I've always been so interested in the environment that when I started studying history at the University of Florida, I got involved with a club at um, a club called the International Business Society. And from there, I became known as the light bulb lady. And I started uh, exchanging traditional incandescent light bulbs for CFLs. And that's really where my my passion for anything with green energy started. And it was just a whole transition from doing nonprofit weatherization activities to create carbon offsets to doing the same sort of thing in New York City later for Con Edison to reduce business expenses. And then the next big thing was solar and then battery. So continuously evolving to find meaningful ways to impact the environment. And how did you get started with Solar One? Um, I know that it's a nonprofit and it was formed in 2014, I believe. Solar One has actually been around for a really long time. We started off as an environmental education center. We were managing Stuyvesant Cove Park, which we we still manage and we're about to put a really awesome building on with a berm and it's going to be a model of all of the different sustainable technologies you can implement in your building. But I got involved in 2014 through the company I was working for, Aeon Solar. I was working for a private solar developer. And uh, the owner of this company said, you really need to meet this guy. He wants to change the world like you do. So we met and we, we talked. I was really... Um, suspicious of the solar industry at that time because everything was so expensive and I was just learning how to implement solutions for Brooklyn brownstones, which is really complicated because of all of the codes involved. But we got to talking and it seemed like a really interesting way to see how you can bring affordable, renewable energy to people that normally don't get it because either the codes are too complicated, it costs too much, or you just don't know about it. And Brooklyn was my community, is still my community. So I was very happy to start working on this opportunity that 
So 2014 is when the Here Come Solar program at Solar One started, and that is the technical assistance program where we help buildings figure out what they need to do to go solar. We can do procurement. We help with um, contractor selection and project Im implementation. We're essentially the problem solvers for getting solar on a building without a vested monetary interest, which is much needed in New York. So I saw that Solar One also has a green energy training program. So you're also involved in getting people trained to install solar? Yeah, absolutely. You can't provide technical assistance without having a workforce to go along with it. So our workforce model focuses on working with people who normally wouldn't get this training. So people who haven't gone to college or had this training um, at a technical school, we provide the hard skills you need to do the physical work, not only for solar installations, but other green trades. And we work with a lot of um, different other nonprofits that focus on helping people who are harder to employ get into this industry. So it's a win-win. Can you just tell me more about how Solar One's business model works as a nonprofit? Um, where are you getting funding and um, how, how do you plan to expand? Yeah, so we've been expanding pretty rapidly recently, I think, with everything that happened during the pandemic. Um, it's very, it's very apparent that need the need for renewable energy and all of this technology, especially when we're at home using more electricity is very important. So a lot of our funding is either through private grants or through um, eight different state agencies. So our, the Haircom Solar program started through a grant from NYSERDA, the New York State, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority. <laughs> Great job. Um, yeah, there's a lot of acronyms in New York. Um, so that program was started to really figure out if a reverse solarized model could work. And um, we've gone after different um, funding opportunities through NYSERDA and other, um, other similar organizations that are trying to find a model to reduce costs for people. That's that's ultimately what the work we're doing is supposed to accomplish. Our goal is to reduce the cost so more people can have renewable energy. So NYSERDA was the biggest funder to start this program. Now a lot of our programs are funded through collaborations. So we work with the New York City Accelerator. We're going to be working with NYSERDA again on um, the Clean Energy Hub, which is a really great solution to for all New Yorkers to find different ways, not only solar, but um, to electrify their buildings and go green. And then, of course, there's the private foundations and my work, which is one of our biggest federally funded contracts through HUD CDVGDR funds. So that's um, federal money that was allocated after Superstorm Sandy for um, disaster recovery. So that's how we were able to figure out how to do batteries. Tell me more about that award-winning project to make sure that people had backup after the horrible aftermath of Sandy. Yeah, so after Sandy, um, because of how, so 
when you have solar, it doesn't make sense to be off grid. You need to be connected to the grid in New York City because that's your most reliable source of power. So when your solar, when the grid goes down, solar goes down as well. So most of the solar installations in New York City were not functional. We instead had a building um, in Stuyvesant Cove Park, which is now getting redone into this model building that I was mentioning earlier. And um, this building had a couple of lead acid batteries, not sustainable, not very uh, pretty, but very functional for what was needed at the time. We also had solar on the roof. So we were able to utilize that technology for people to come to the building to charge um, anything from power tools to cell phones to computers, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough energy to do anything significant. So we started with that type of model, finding community facilities that could, that the community, that the neighbors really like and trust where they can go to, to have power. New York City, we have lots of dense buildings where people can't have generators. And even if they could have a generator, generators are not, uh, not the best solution during a power outage when there's chaos and you don't want more noise, you want less noise, you want calm. So that's why we pivoted to solar plus batteries. And um, since 2016, we've been working on identifying the facilities that can support this technology. So that's very challenging in New York where you have lots of buildings that are in flood zones and then also lots of buildings that are flammable. One of the biggest concerns with batteries is the uh, ability for them to catch on fire and then a fire to spread from building to building to building and cause utter destruction in our very dense neighborhoods. So um, we spent many years figuring out which buildings would work and then how to actually do the permitting. So we've worked with a couple of contractors in actually figuring out the implementation of, um, of these projects. And it's and on, it's still ongoing. We're uh, now in the fire alarm process where it's very interesting learning about how some contractors interpret things other ways. Um, but there, there are many pieces to an energy storage system that are not batteries. So it's, it's a challenge when you think about um, how batteries are going to fit into the renewable energy landscape. But this was our first foray into actually getting it done at a scale and the scale is very small, but it's at least something that can be replicated. We'll be right back. This edition of the Contractors Corner podcast is brought to you by Scanafly, the only drone-based solar design software. Learn more about Scanafly at scanafly.com. Now back to the show. So tell me about the logistics of this specific project. Is this a rooftop community array and then the batteries are in housed indoors on like the first level? So we are working with 11 community facilities. They're all nonprofits. Um, everything is sited outdoors because uh, um, we've gone through, I think, three iterations of the fire code since this uh, process started. You can now install batteries inside, but the um, there's a lot more safety measures that are needed to do it inside. So we are in the most, for the most part, 
the solar is on the roof, batteries are also on the roof. Um, we have four installations at Brooklyn Public Library. Those are solar canopies and the batteries are installed on Dunnage near the canopies. They can't be installed under the canopies because uh, the distance between the cabinet and the top, or sorry, the bottom of the solar array is still a fire hazard. So um, the footprint is still very limiting. In some cases we did, um, we were able to install the battery at grade. That's for sites that are um, in the less energy dense neighborhoods. So like in the Bronx, um, we're working with a volunteer ambulance corps that really needs power to have their operations running during an emergency. And um, they're not in a flood zone, they're very close to one, but their building is um, kind of built up on a hill. So that's a really great uh, demonstration of how you can have batteries at grade, but it still takes up a big footprint. And the specific technology that we're using um, has a safety mechanism where if there's a buildup of explosive gases, which is uh, a hazard associated with lithium iron batteries, the, um, the doors will open themselves. So it's called the deflagration hatch. And because of that, you can't lock the doors to the battery cabinet. So they are uh, ready to be vandalized. <laughs> but um, so one of the weird limiting factors that we've had on our projects is how to secure these systems. So there needs to be a locked fence around them. Um, and that needs to have a certain footprint around <laughs> the cabinets so that um, you abide by all of the safety regulations and deflagration zones and everything else. So uh, for the, the batteries that we were able to install at grade, uh, there's a lot more challenges, but there's also challenges to putting it on a roof where you have to have it be on a building that's structurally stable need to have many layers of fireproofing underneath it and then also be able to run the connections from the roof to wherever the other components of the system are. So, yep, did a combination of in uh, of all outdoor, but some higher and some lower. Uh, we are going to do our first solar carport, which is really exciting. You don't see too many of those. And dense New York City, but uh, we were working, one of the community facilities is a gymnasium and it's a prefab building that is not up to current building code standards. So we had to move everything from the roof to grade. And um, yeah, this, this site is going to have a small battery next to a large carport, which is really great. And all of the sites were designed so that the solar can either fully recharge the battery within a day or the battery is oversized to make up for the lack of solar that is available. Often solar is limited by the roof space and the rooftop access requirements or the building's needs. So like at Brooklyn Public Library, we're probably offsetting 4% of their traditional energy usage. Whereas at the Volunteer Ambulance Corps, we are offsetting their entire usage with a really, with a pretty small PV array, but their needs during an emergency are much larger. So we had to upsize the battery. Sorry, that wasn't your question, but I went into a little bit more detail. 
No, that's very interesting. Um, and I, I was wondering, your you said your background is in history. Are you now, I mean, it sounds like you're fully involved in designing and permitting and all these different aspects. How did you learn all this? I think it's, I think you just need to be good at reading and like have attention to detail. I think this field is something, I don't submit plan sets to the buildings department, but I know how to read them and I know how to check for the different things that are required by code. The nuance associated with design is something that's that's often neglected. And there are so many contractors that are just trying to get things out there as soon as possible that they leave details out or they make mistakes. Um, I think my my role is just having a lot of attention to detail, reading and rereading things to understand it um, and helping other people do that because many people don't have the time. My role is not to draft or draw or sign off on calculations. It's to make sure that the code is understood and we're doing things the right way and everyone's needs are being met. So I guess history helped in that uh, I know how I can write something that uh, is easy to understand and show the evolution of how something needs to be done or or how it works so other people can do it because we don't want it to be a secret. We want other people to implement this as well. So is the vision here that Solar One is creating new community safe emergency spaces where people can go if they lost power and be warm and be able to charge their phones and gather? Ideally, yes. Um, as you know, natural disasters strike at weird times. So Sandy happened, was a hurricane, or I guess technically a superstorm that happened in late October, which was then quickly followed by a snowstorm. A lot of these facilities are, they get their heating through natural gas. And even though there is a push for electrification, the size of the batteries that we're doing is not, uh, is not large enough to support uh, electrified heating systems, which is unfortunate. Um, there's there's somewhat of a disconnect there. But the idea with this program is to create a space where people can convene. It might not be super warm or super cold, but it will be uh, better than the weather outdoors. Um, so it'll be a safe place to convene inside for the most part. There are some facilities where it's very evident that um, they will be totally destroyed by another flood but the, it's a really valuable community asset. So in that case, um, we set up a smaller battery system where people can charge outdoors once the flooding has, um, has gone away. And that's something that that community is used to, which is unfortunate having to deal with, with um, buildings being inundated with salt water and destruction and whatever else. But nearby community gardens and sidewalks, like that is enough accessibility and enough of a resource for them to be able to go to. So there's two sites like that, but for the most part, there are indoor spaces with lots of um, tables and chairs and power outlets so people can, um, people can help get themselves back on their feet after a disaster. 
As you look to the future, what are some new product trends or things that you hope will roll out that will add to this mission? That's a great question. I think a lot of people have those like small portable power banks, which are really cool, um, but they they can't support like what you actually need during a disaster. You can't plug in your refrigerator unless you have a really high capacity fridge. Um, and then on the other end, a lot of people have e-bikes that are now becoming, the charging is becoming an increasing hazard in New York City where um, there are many fires started because of um, how they're, because of how unregulated they are and the ways that they're charging. So to me, uh, I don't know if this is really an innovation, but something that would be really cool to see in the future is a way to have not stationary energy storage, but mobile energy storage solutions like these smaller battery packs or e-bike batteries that people can go to and rent and borrow um, from a facility that is dedicated to charging these safely. Because I think that's one of the biggest deterrents right now to energy storage um, in New York City. We've seen so many examples of smaller scale energy storage causing bigger disasters than they need to. So if there's more of a um, sharing model where it's more accessible and the there's somebody else controlling how things are charged and you have a electrical system in the building that can support the charging, that would be wonderful. And then people can take those back to their homes and use them during a disaster. Or if um, if it's really hot in the summer, they can support the grid by discharging, uh, by charging from the battery, like plugging their refrigerator into the battery or their AC into the battery instead of using grid energy. So there, to me, I would love to see more durable community mobile power solutions that can also be charged by renewable energy. And then I believe the last question I have is about the Inflation Reduction Act and just wondering how the um, different incentive adders in there in regards to low-income communities might help your business model. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Traditionally, with batteries, um, the costs are so high that incentives are not enough. Um, so my program is federally funded, which means the facilities that are receiving these um, renewable energy systems are getting them fully granted. So they have no out-of-pocket costs. Actually, their, their operating costs are reduced because they're gonna have solar reducing their electricity costs in the future. So for low-income communities in particular, um, the adders are the the upfront cost to adopt technology is still too high. So you might have adders, but unless there's creative financing to go along with it, where you don't need to shell out twenty thousand dollars or or more, um, you're there's not going to be it's not going to be a significant um, you're not going to see a significant adoption rate. But I think the Inflation Reduction Act will help 
more middle income folks who are really interested in the environment and want to make the change. I've, I've had so many people say they want to do air source heat pumps. <laughs> uh, they want to get rid of their window units and do that. But before doing that, they want to make sure they have enough solar to support that. And these are people who aren't who have a lot of cash to spend. These are people who really care about uh, what's happening to the climate. And I think that's where that's going to have the biggest impact. But for for lower income communities, there's going to need to be more creative financing to go along with the um, incentives offered by the government. All right. Well, thank you so much, Angelica. This has been really illuminating. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been another edition of Contractors Corner. Join us each month as I talk to solar contractors across the country. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Visit us online at solarpowerworldonline.com for more great featured content and breaking solar news. See you back here next month.